Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for the sum and scope of it. And Lord, here in a text which sounds um, like some sort of apocalyptic future thing, it is describing what was present then in Peter's church and what is present now in our own church age. And so Lord, we pray for us that we would um, sit under your word soberly, that we would not be those who despise your authority but instead we are those um, who submit in all things to the God who has come to offer us something better than we ever imagined. So Lord, we pray for these truths to be worked into our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit today. We pray this in your name, amen. There are few things more infuriating to each of us than being led astray. We hate being taken advantage of. We hate being a sucker. In fact, I think that part of what is driving our very... uh, divisive and very polarizing political and cultural debate during this time is that neither side wants to be the side at risk of being duped. And so we pound the table louder that we are right and the other side is wrong and we are not being fooled. And whether it's our posts on Facebook, whether it's the caution we show when shopping on Craigslist, or it's the apprehension when the deposed king of Nigeria emails you asking for ransom money, we're cautious We don't want to be bamboozled, tricked, or deceived. And this desire that we all have, this universal desire that I see even in my kids when I offer them something behind my back, is something that God has given to us. A desire to know what is true and to live in light of that. God designed us to live for truth. It's universal. The unfortunate thing is in the story of humanity, Genesis 3 also defines our problem. Is that in Genesis 3, we show that despite our best efforts, Humanity is often led astray. And it's led astray, first and foremost, by being led away from what God has said, from what God has promised for our good. In Genesis 3, the shady serpent salesman offered them a life of get-rich-quick scheme and godlike glory, and they took it. They were deceived. They turned away from what was good, and they believed the lie. And the result is that we now live in a world where sin corrupts all of our hearts. And the presence of sin means that there will be sinners who seek to take advantage of us. And there will be times where our heart, desiring wrong things, desires these things that are dressed up and shown to be enticing. We will be taken advantage of. Despite our best efforts, despite the rebellious attempt to change this all the way back in the garden, you and me are not God. We do not know everything. We are not infallible. We are not omniscient. We have blind spots. We are perceptible to being deceived. We can be duped, tricked, embarrassed, and led astray in so many areas of life. And in 2 Peter, which we've been working through here at Sovereign Hope, the Apostle Peter is writing to churches and to people just like us. And in a world where we will often be taken advantage of, we will often be led astray by bad schemes and shoddy sales pitches, Peter is showing that there is one place, one key place where we must not, cannot, and by the help of God's wonderful word, will not be duped. You see, according to Peter, every other place in this world might lead you to make wrong decisions. But to be deceived in this place, the place that Peter is going to speak of in 2 Peter 2, is to suffer the direst of all consequences. To be tricked on a loan application might result in bad credit. But to be deceived on the nature of what the gospel is is to face something devastatingly fatal. It is to be tricked in the one area where you cannot afford, everything else can be overcome, but this will not be overcome if you fall prey to this. 
Today, Peter's going to warn us about false teachers. That is, not bad teachers. That's not ill-equipped teachers. These are false teachers who seek to lead people astray on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And perhaps as Devin was reading our text for us today, you were maybe struck by some of the language that Peter uses in describing these men and women. But as we'll see today, Peter is using this language, one, because it's true, and two, because he wants you to see the eternal realities that are being played out in what is being proclaimed regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be spared the ultimate shame of, being, of misunderstanding, misrepresenting, and missing out entirely on the simplicity and the sole good news of what Jesus has done for sinners. And our big picture today is this, is that the truth of the gospel exposes the lies of sin and the security of following Jesus. The truth of the gospel shows the lies of sin and shows the joy of following Jesus. And we're going to see this in four parts today. We're going to see first, in the first couple of verses, Peter's going to make a big point of just the danger of false teachers. He's going to describe what has happened, what was happening, and what is happening today. And then moving from there, we're going to see three ways where Peter is actually going to correct some of the wrong views of false teachers. We're going to see that false teachers are wrong about comfort. False teachers are wrong about morality. False teachers are wrong about freedom. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the danger of false teachers. And it's here in these first three verses where Peter is going to lay out everything that will follow in his argument today. And really, if you have time this week, go back and read 2 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 2. And notice how they are two halves of the same question. They are meant to contrast each other. And so we see that now today. We've been out, as Johnny was preaching in John 3, we haven't been in 2 Peter for a couple of weeks. And so I'm actually going to start in chapter 1, verse 19, so we can kind of understand the context better that we're getting in today. So read with me. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 19, and then we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 3. And we have, he's talking about believers, the church, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So there's this little bit of logic that Peter has here that that you might be able to follow. He starts by talking about God's prophetic word, Scripture. In the Old Testament, these were the prophets looking forward to Christ. In the New Testament, this was the gospel of Jesus Christ that was lived out before them, which the gospels, the four gospels uh, portray, and which the rest of the scriptures begin to define. And he says, these things are not just gimmicks made by men who wanted to run a religion. These were God's words written with the full authority of God, written exactly how God wanted them to be written through the power of his Holy Spirit. But despite how clear and how authoritative and how inerrant God's clear authority in his word was, he was saying even back then, there were false prophets. There were people who tried to set up an authority outside of God's authority. And he says, and there will be now, church, even false teachers among you. And so we might follow his thought process, and if they were there in the Old Testament... They were there in Peter's day. You can probably assume that they are here today as well. Why should we pay attention to this? Because what are the false teachers trying to do? We see they're destined to destruction. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And we might say, well, great, they follow their own road. But they want to exploit you with false words. 
They want to greedily extort you for their own benefit. And so the question we should have in a world where we're cautious, when a long-lost friend comes back into town and wants to take us to coffee and hits us with a targeted marketing scheme, we should be cautious of where Satan wants to deceive us through false teachers as well. We're on guard everywhere else. Are we guarded here? So how might we identify these teachers? Well, there are three things in this first passage about the danger of false teachers that he gives to help us identify these people. First, these teachers apparently at one point appeared to be Christian. They appeared to be Christian. He says, denying even their master. That is Jesus. He's saying that at one point, it seemed that these teachers were bought by the blood of Jesus, confessed faith in the context of the church, were baptized and living among you. He says this more in verses 20 through 21, that there's this level where these people are not claiming to no longer be Christian. They're coming from the ranks of Christians, but proclaiming something unchristian. You see, the danger of false teachers is they don't tell you that. They don't come with signs and placards. Their font isn't written in different colors. They're not wearing opposite colored jerseys, which means this, that what makes false teachers so dangerous is not that they set their pulpit up so far from the truth of Christianity, it's that they set their pulpit up so close to the truth of Christianity that it's hard to discern where it's different. But where it's different is essential, according to Peter. These people end in destruction. These people, we'll see in verses 20 through 21, have turned away from what was true. Which means this, and this is sobering. We like to think, I like to think, that I'm pretty good at spotting false teachers. But here's the thing. As we read this text, we learn more about these false teachers. And they're not denying the divinity of Jesus. That would be easy. That's a firm line we can draw. They're not denying the Trinity. Religions that deny the Trinity are outside of the Orthodox faith. They're not doing that. They're not even denying that Jesus came and died for their sins. In fact, what we see as we continue to read this is that it might be that these false teachers could stand up at this very pulpit and say that Jesus is the Son of God who died to take away the sins of this world, and yet they speak destructive heresies seeking to exploit you. The word heresies just means sect or spin-off, meaning they've taken components of what is true and they have spun it off so it is entirely different but seemingly the same. We live in a world where just like Peter, just like the Old Testament prophets, we cannot simply assume that the pastors you listen to, the authors you read, and the Christian celebrities with blue check marks, though they speak much of Jesus and scriptural things, actually believe and proclaim the true gospel. So what do we do when it is this distinct? Are we splitting hairs here at this point? Well, Peter's going to help us learn where we can see this and where we can discern. And that's that he's saying, what's interesting, in talking about false teachers, he's not going to teach them to discern what it is these teachers are saying. Instead, he's telling them to look at how these teachers are living. And this is the second warning he gives about the danger of false teachers, is that their false teaching is unveiled by their actions. Look at verse 2. And many will follow there, that's the false teacher's sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So what is the danger of these false teachers? The danger is they might confess and articulate all the proper biblical jargon of what the gospel is, but their lives preach that you can confess Christ as Lord, but continue to live in the sensual and sinful passions of the world and still be a-okay. That you can confess Christ, but not live for Christ and still be Christian. And three times in our text today, Peter's going to use this word sensual to describe the conduct of these false teachers. And the word simply carries with it this tone of uh, completely abandoning the restraint of oneself. It's, in a way, it's, it carries a, 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 a vibe of hedonism, of not having self-control for anything, but living for the gratification of yourself. And that could be in areas of greed, money, sexuality, gluttony, whichever area you can think of. 
And Peter wants us to know this because these people aren't out there trying to attract you with a kale-only diet. It's attractive. That's why he's warning us against this. There's something attractive about their lifestyle that when we see it and we see what they confess and we see how they live, there is part of our hearts which says, I wish I could have that. And I actually do not think that there is a heresy more prevalent or more dangerous in the Western world than this very heresy. The heresy that you can be a Christian and not change anything about the way you live. We see it all the time. And I want to speak specifically to our quadrant of college students who are coming today that you will encounter on this campus, on your Twitter timelines, and on Facebook, bold, outspoken voices trumpeting Christ, but who simultaneously invite you and affirm, whether in word or deed, that you can do all of that while living for the desires of the flesh. And Peter's concern is that you don't understand the danger of that lie. Now, I want to clarify something here. It's really, really important that we clarify what's going on. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, and maybe you grew up where the Bible was just moralism, and here it is, if you live right, you'll be right with God. That is not what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying that anyone who sins in sensual ways is a false teacher. Peter has a word for Christians who struggle with sin. Christian. That's what we all wrestle with, even when we are saved by grace. Peter isn't talking about people who sometimes fail in their walk with God and respond with heartfelt repentance over those issues, seeking in prayer to draw on the riches of Christ and his grace and to live differently. Instead, he's speaking to those who do not find their actions to be sinful or that they have no need to repent over the way they're living because this is all allowable in the context of grace. To find someone, this is big. So I've lived in Christian culture the entirety of my life. I grew up in a Christian family. I went to a Christian high school. I saw what it looked like to be a Christian at the University of Montana context. And there is a bold claim that Peter is making here that we ought not to silently affirm. And that is this. To find someone who thinks they can come to church on Sunday and be saved by Jesus and spend the rest of the week living for the glories of the flesh is not to find a weak Christian. It is to find a heretical one. It is to find one who in name only claims Christ, but in every other way is destined for destruction. In fact, there's a lifestyle that Peter says here that might not utter a single word, but which ends up blaspheming the way of truth. That's what it says. And this is the third thing he wants us to know about the danger of false teachers. It's not only were they Christian, not only do their actions show their lie, but also their lives are anti-evangelism. And here's what's interesting about this. So this is not thought out. This isn't in the notes. So if it doesn't make sense, just delete it and we'll keep going. But Christians are the only ones silly enough to believe these false teachers. Because I think if you're a non-Christian in here, you already know this. Your friends and your neighbors, when they see someone claiming to follow Christ but living for their passions, they have a word for them as well. Hypocrites. But for some reason in the Christian church, we take what even our non-believing friends called hypocrites and we make them into heroes. Trying to affirm their lifestyle and follow in their footing. But what they proclaim is not the gospel. It blasphemes, it slanders, it works against the very salvation they seek to be proclaiming. Here's Peter's quick tip on how to live like a heretic. Proclaim Christ with your mouth, and deny Christ with your life. Why is that heretical? Because look at how Jesus was introduced in Matthew 1, verse 21. 
Speaking of the child growing in Mary's womb, the angel says this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Why did Jesus come? To save people from their sins. That is the wonderful evangelistic message of the gospel. That is the good news that you can be saved from sin through Jesus Christ. So it is nothing more than blasphemous to say Christ came to save you from your sin, now go back to living in sin. It denies the very thing that Jesus came to do, to save you from it, not to send you back to it. There is no safe sinning. To deny the danger of sin is to deny the good news of salvation that Jesus came to save you from it. It is blasphemous to think this way. And this is the sneaky danger of false teachers, is it sounds like grace. It sounds like the gospel. It sounds like living your best life now, but in the end, it leads to your ruin. And just in case you don't understand the praying and the deceit and the rejection in these first three verses, Peter now begins an anatomy lesson. He's going to share with us the anatomy of false teachers. And he does this first by showing the primary aspect of theology about truth that the Bible gives about God, which these men and women are denying. Why do these people live like this even when they claim Christ? If your non-believing friends view this as hypocritical because they know the Bible holds up some standard of morality, why is it these people who are claiming to follow Christ and yet live this way are able to do so with a clean conscience? Because it's the false teachers who deny the truth of God's word when it comes to matters of sin. Why do these people live like this? Because they deny that God will ultimately judge sin. Look at how he begins to transition to this in the last part of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Why is it that chapter one, what we read at the beginning, kind of segueing in, Peter is hammering the truth and the authority of God's word? Because false teachers take the parts of God's word they like and simply deny or write away the parts they don't. Look at how Peter states this in chapter two, verses nine B through the first part of 10. So this is kind of skipping to the end of this paragraph and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. In talking about those who will be judged at the end, he says it is those who live for sin and those who despise authority. And the way in which many people think they can live in unrepentant sin comes about when you begin to despise the authority that God says sin is a big deal. When you begin to pull the plunko strings of scripture, you can justify your lifestyle however you want when you remove the rod of God's just punishment. They're denying judgment. But God will judge those who continually live in sin. And this is where Peter wants to point out that false teachers are wrong when it comes to their comfort. They tell us to live this way because it's the comfortable way of life, but he says there is nothing comfortable about this way of life. Now, Peter is going to give this argument that has three examples, and his claim, his big claim, is going to come in verse 9. And if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, he's going to be referencing three Old Testament stories in here. You don't have to know exactly what's going on there to understand what's, what's happening. I want to see if you can kind of perceive what Peter's logic is in this text. Would you read with me uh, verses 4 through 10, the first part of verse 10? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Now he has this aside. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now back to his argument. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. Did you catch Peter's argument and his examples, how he's using them to teach us here? All three of his examples highlight the judgment which God has given in history that his people knew well to judge those who continued to do evil. He first mentions the rebellion of the angels. Here these angelic beings rebelled against God's command, sought to elevate themselves, and those angels, not human, not like you, they were condemned. They were cast into hell where they themselves are awaiting judgment. God has not spared even the spiritual deities from judgment for their sinful actions. Then he uses the example of Noah's day. And in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis 1, everything was created good. Genesis 3, we choose the good of Satan, the shady salesman over God. Genesis 6 says the heart of all mankind was only evil continually. The whole earth was living for the passion of the flesh. And he says they were judged for and perished in the flood. Only Noah and his family were spared because they obeyed God. Then there's Sodom and Gomorrah, these sister cities who God destroyed by fire because of their total depravity, their violence, their sexual misconduct, their aggression towards God and his people. And Peter says that this city was destroyed. Why? As an example to what will happen to the ungodly. But, as was with Noah, Lot and his family Lot who pursued righteousness was spared. What's the point? If God judged angels for their sin, if God judged the earth during the days of Noah for their sin but spared Noah, if God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin and spared Lot, then what do we know? Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. What do we know? What does this history lesson prove to show us? That God is faithful to save, and God is faithful to judge. And so, what is your relationship to God's judgment like? We begin to see some of the heresies of our day when we assess how our heart responds to judgment. Desire for God's judgment hasn't changed through the centuries, but the way in which the Christian church tries to dance around it certainly has. Do you cringe when this is read? Because this text is a helpful text when it comes to understanding not only the wages of sin, but actually the reality of it. We get to see how filthy, how yucky, how disgusting, how deservedly so sin is going to be judged. When we get to the latter part of this chapter, we're going to see that sin is not a private affair. Sin is not a just you issue. Sin is rebellion against the God who created you. It is an offensive spitting in the face of the one who has called us to worship him. Sin is also harmful and predatorial against those who are around us. Sin is not a victimless crime. We live in a culture that is passionate about justice. And it is only the doctrine of God's just judgment that we can ever be for justice with any sort of teeth. To just simply accept that some people will get caught and some people won't, That's to be sort of passionate for justice. But if you want all of the secret, all of the shameful, all of the devastating, wicked, and evil things to be judged, then this is your doctrine that says justice exists and God hates more than our culture does injustice and he will punish it. 
I watched a documentary about a, a group of Muslims who escaped ISIS rule in the Middle East and have fled to some Western countries. What they're doing is they're having a network of um, kind of spies in the ISIS state sending out video of what's going on and the crimes against humanity that they're posting online. ISIS is seeing this and realizing that the falsity of their, because ISIS says that they're leading this flourishing regime in these countries. These videos show the contrary. So what ISIS is doing is they're finding the friends and family members of these journalists that are left in the ISIS-controlled lands, and they're filming their executions and posting those online. Why? So that they might offer the false promise to these journalists that if you stop doing this and come back, life will be easier. No one needs to die. This documentary shows one of these Muslims who is watching the execution of his father. And at the end, kind of through tears, he talks about how he's not going to stop doing what he's doing because it's important. And he was ultimately going to trust that Allah would judge, that Allah would repay the evil that was done to his father. Dear Christians, we of all people who see and believe the one true God of Scripture must also learn with a greater revelation and the pure truth of God that in the face of temptation, we can recognize both the warnings and the vindications that comes from the doctrine of God's judgment. In the face of people and lifestyles which try to lure you away from the holiness of Jesus and into the false comforts of sin, remember judgment that all does not end well with them. Remember judgment, that though you might be mistreated, misspoken of, harmed, and even murdered, that you will be vindicated by the God who will punish all those that God has promised for his godly people to rescue them from any trial. You will endure the trials if you are one of God's godly people. What a promise! But what a hope that we ought not to misunderstand. For look at how the prophet Jeremiah spoke of the false prophets of their day. And look at what they proclaim. Jeremiah 8 verse 11. They, that's the false prophets, have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The allure of the false prophet is to come to you who are burdened by perhaps what might be sin in your life and say, don't worry about it. You're at peace with God. Now here's the tension. There is immense peace with God that is possible. But the question we ask is, how do you know you have it? How do you know you are one who will be rescued by God and not one who will be judged by God? What is your confidence in the face of competing false prophets that you know what is true? Because the truth is, all of us deserve this judgment. All of us deserve this destruction. In the early 1900s, the London Times looked at the state of the world and said things aren't going well. And so they opened up a series of op-eds asking the greatest thinkers of the day the simple question, what is wrong with the world? One pastor named G.K. Chesterton wrote back with a lengthy reply that read, Dear Sirs, I am. You see, Chesterton understood that he himself was a broken man and part of the problem. That he too at one time had all of these nasty nasties in his heart. That he too at one time was a rejecter of Jesus, a rebel against God. If we look at the two men who are mentioned here, Lot and Moses, they are not stunning symbols of righteousness on every page of Scripture. Lot offers his daughter to a violent mob to hopefully appease them. And by God's grace, it doesn't happen. Noah, after the flood, gets drunk and makes a complete fool of himself. If our hope of avoiding this judgment is based on us becoming righteous, based off of our own past or future performance, then it is no good news for any of us. But the gospel is good news for sinners. 
The good news of the gospel is that you are a sinner, but that Jesus, the only one who has never sinned, takes that punishment for you on the cross. All of the wickedness, all of the vileness, all of the shame, all of the deceit, all of the lies, he took it for you. He took this destruction so that we might not have to. That you are freed from the curse and covered by his righteousness. But this is where we cannot stop. Not only has Jesus freed us from the curse of sin, but he has saved us to change us. He has given us his ability to now walk in newness of life. The gospel is not that you will not sin, though we give every fiber of our being to that end. The gospel is that you begin to see the danger of sin for what it is. And you choose in your strengths, and you choose in your weaknesses, and you choose in those quiet moments in secret that you are living for Jesus as your greatest pleasure, knowing that everything else is a false promise. And you ask him to help you and to open your eyes to not fall prey to things that never satisfy and promises that never pay. You see, false teachers confess the death of Christ so that they might find what they need to live for themselves. But true Christians die to Christ so that they might live in every way for him. This, according to Peter, is better. It is not easier, but it is better. And why do we trust that Jesus is better than sin? Because sin is gross. All of the, the world's lies tell us that sin brings delight, that it's joyful, but it is not. It's become common. I don't know if you've seen it, but to find um, articles online of people who work at restaurants or fast food places getting fired because what they're doing is they're filming the way food is prepared or stored or treated in their restaurants. I heard one restaurant who, if you came after they had shut off the fryers, had a bucket of chicken that when it fell on the floor during the course of the day, that's what you got. And these things, right, you've seen the supersize me thing where the pink goo that makes the chicken nuggets. It gives us this ew factor and makes us think for just a moment that maybe this is gross. Maybe we shouldn't do this. What Peter is about to do in these next verses is to unmask the disgusting heart of sin, the thing that seems so delicious and so wonderfully cheap on the 99-cent menu that might be made up of something that no good person should want to eat. Because those who promote with their words and their lives these false gospels are often seen as super spiritual and studs for the sake of the gospel. They're often seen as people who truly understand grace, They might be seen as those who who really want you to live for yourself. Don't deny who you are. We know how to help you flourish. In fact, what is the motto of our day? If it doesn't hurt other people, who cares how you live? But look at what lies behind all of this sentiment. And this is our third point today, where false teachers are wrong about their morality. We're wrong about how we view them. They do not want what's good for us. And they're wrong about what is good in and of themselves. Read with me the review Peter gives of these false teachers in verses 10 through 18. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant and will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrongs as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, they don't even wait till night to get drunk. Whatever it is, they are willing to do it whenever they want. They are blots and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice, entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain for his wrongdoing. That's an Old Testament story. We don't have time to address it right now. But he was rebuked for his own transgressions. 
A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Crazy, but true. It really happened. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. In other words, they are yelling morons. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. I don't know about you, but if that's on the Yelp review, I will not eat there. Yeah, we do, don't we? We tend to think that they're the ones who care that they have found the good life. You see, when you see the outspoken Christian on campus leaving a party every night with a different girl and showing up to lead Bible study the next day, you might think that's a wonderful life. It's having your cake and eating it too. When you see the Instagram celebrity presenting the satisfaction of materialism and calling you to participate in it, you might think that's a generous offer. When you see your favorite preacher telling you that you can stop avoiding sin because Jesus loves you anyway, you might find the encouragement that you think you've always needed. But Peter has torn the mask off what you've really found. Waterless springs, blots and blemishes, irrational animals, predatory, lustful eyes, opportunistic parasites, and selfishness masked insincerity. Peter's saying to his church, they do all of this while feasting with you. Meaning, they're probably in here. They're in here and their eyes are for you. And why do they want you? Because nothing makes sin more comfortable than company. Nothing affirms our lifestyle of convincing others that this is okay. So what do they do? They pray against the weak. They prey on the new converts, barely escaping the world, new, fresh converts, unsteady with new legs of grace. They prey on them. They exploit them. They destroy their lives, calling them to the danger of what was once steady. So church, it's our job as loving members. There are no Discovery Channel documentaries of young calves getting eaten by crocodiles in this church. We care for those who are weak and unsteady with the grip of grace, putting out those dangerous people and protecting those who are among us because one day it might be you It might be you who needs that grace. But I want to say this. If you are one who wrestles with this tension, and this often is me, how I want all of the riches of Christianity and none of the toil of it. Here's the thing. Sin sucks. It really does. Even the most spiritual Christian will walk through the decades of their life feeling the painful tug of that hook which in Adam has embedded itself deeply into our hearts. We will be prone to sin. We will always wrestle with temptations to give way to it. And in those moments, there will be two voices that call out to you. There are those who say, cast aside your cares. Come and drink from the well of sin. Why are you living in this tension? Jesus loves you, don't you know that? Don't you know that you just have to come to him and he loves you and you will make it to the end? Judgment has been removed. Enjoy the world. For Christ has set his love on you. And behind those half-truths and seeming encouragements is the rot of selfish lies leading to death. The other voice is the voice that cries out in Matthew, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. You see, this voice is not the voice 
that denies judgment. It's the voice that calls out, willing to take it for you. The voice who calls out and says, all of the pain of temptation that you will have in this world is nothing compared to what I'm willing to take from you for the wages of sin. And instead, you could have something better. Because here's the last point today. False teachers are wrong about freedom. They think they have found joy. They think they've found a life worth living for. But here we see the beauty of the gospel when Peter begins to show us the foolishness of false gospels. Verses 19 through 23. The false teachers promise them, that is the weak, the unstable, those barely escaping, freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better of them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. You see, false teachers call you to sin because they boast that Christ has freed us to engage in sin safely. But Peter says this whole mindset is slavery. There's no freedom here. In holding out sin as what truly satisfies, you are bound to an itch that you can never scratch, a hunger you can never fill, a thirst that will never be satisfied. No one by nature of sinning has ever done it and said, I am content. And if you have, give it 15 minutes. It's no longer content. You want, and you want, and you want, and you want, and you become enslaved. But Jesus here frees us by giving his people a desire for himself. What truly satisfies. False teachers say they know God. We have seen his revelation. We've had his command and we've found it to be bleh. And we've turned aside. But to have actually tasted who this Jesus is, is to taste something you are unwilling to give up. It is to taste something that satisfies us deeply and contently and experientially. We refuse to believe our own authority because we've tasted the goodness of Jesus' authority in grace and love. Look at how a true believer responds to all of this. Again, read 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2 in contrast this week and notice how they are describing the opposites of the same thing. This is 1 Peter 1 verses 3 or 2, excuse me, chapter 1 verses 3 through 4. Listen to how this is the opposite of what we just read in chapter 2. Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. To truly know Jesus is to realize that Jesus has delivered us from having to choose what is sinful. Yes, you still can choose sin, and every Christian knows that battle. But for the first time, by way of grace, we can choose Christ, we can choose faithfulness. We can choose obedience and satisfaction. We have the freedom to be enslaved, not to sin which leads to death, but be to enslave to Jesus who leads us to glory, unsurpassing glory. Look at how Paul speaks of this in Romans 6, verses 17 through 19. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you, were once, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Church, do not be deceived. 
following Christ in all of life is what leads us to joy. There will be those who, in, who seem to be Christian in your life, who attempt to call you away from the gospel, but it is those who choose Christ and are enslaved to him who will be saved. These are those who see the joy of what their master has done and trust him over the false loves of sin. To those who want an end better than judgment, look at Christ. Pursue the righteousness which he gives to those who want a better prophet and a better caring leader, entrust yourself to the one who didn't come to prey on you, but the one who came to die for you. To you who want freedom, lay down the chains of sin and put on the freedom that comes for living for the glory of this generous master because here at the end of the gospel is the wonderful cry of liberty, not license, not legalism, but liberty. Liberty from sin and liberty for righteousness. And in this is the good news of the Christ who came to save us so that we might endure and enjoy him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would protect not only our ears from what they hear, but our eyes from what they see. Lord, we pray for those in here, just as Peter assumes, who may be false teachers, who sitting in this room might confess Christ with their mouth, but their lives blaspheme the truth of the gospel which saves. Lord, I pray that in a divine way you satisfy the palates of our hearts in a way which satisfies that we refuse to be content with the false promises of sin, but we see them in all of their grotesqueness. Instead, cling to you. We pray that this church is a place safe for the unsteady and for those barely escaping. That we choose not to prey on them for our own preferences, but we lay down our lives so that they too might see the goodness of the gospel which saves them. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.